Castle fans and dino lovers, welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. Hey, welcome back to the Cranbrook Paleo Podcast. My name is Tim, and today we have a guest that I am super excited to talk about. He is a paleo artist, which is what my background kind of is in. His name is Brian Eng. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. So, Brian, you are a paleo artist. How did you get involved with paleo art, and what was it that first drew you into paleontology? I, I guess I think that my interest in paleontology, like a lot of people, started at a, at a pretty young age. You know, you look at a dinosaur book, and it's full of these fantastic creatures. And then for me, it was like, as you get older, like you find out more and more of the world is like make-believe. Like, you, you yeah. know, you get told Santa isn't real, and the Easter Bunny is a conspiracy theory, and... You know, you've got, you know, I don't know, like, and then you find out that like every religion thinks it's right. And, and, and all this stuff gets eroded, but these fantastic, seemingly unbelievable creatures like stayed real. Yeah. <laughs> like we have physical <laughs> evidence for them. Um, and I've, I've always been interested in, in natural history and nature broadly. So like as a, at a very young age, you know, I would just be hanging out in the backyard and encounter you know, lizards and squirrels and mm-hmm. birds and all that stuff just uh, like kind of innately was very, I was very drawn to the world of creatures. And then I guess fast forward, I went to school for film and animation at Loyola Marymount University. And in animation school, you, you know, you draw all the time. And and I wanted to make, I wanted to make monster movies. I still do. And, you know, in animation school, you're drawing all the time. And and I, I maintained an interest in natural history broadly. And it's like, you can go to the zoo and draw living animals. And you can go to a life drawing class or just people watch and draw people. But, like, there's this whole group of extinct animals. That, like, we don't know exactly what they look like. And for me, that was, like, the hardest, the hardest drawing challenge I could conceive of is trying to draw an animal that was real, but we don't know exactly what it looked like. And it's kind of different than anything alive of the day, especially in the case of like a lot of dinosaurs and extinct archosaurs and yeah. pterosaurs and things like that. They're pretty different, but it still has to feel right and it needs to be anatomically accurate. Mm-hmm. And so it, my, my, I started doing paleo art like kind of on the side as an extension of the discipline of trying to understand anatomy and be able to draw anatomy of a variety of different creatures to like enhance my ability to come up with weird and hopefully interesting creature designs. Um, and then like basically from that, that was, so I got out of college, I think in 2007 and that was right around the time that a lot of paleontologists were starting to have blogspot blogs where they blog mm-hmm. about the stuff they're working on and just kind of like their thoughts about different things. And you, and you got a different perspective on paleontology and natural history than you do from like books and published scientific papers, because you, you get to see the process of thinking about these things yeah. and like, you know, how you go from like often fragmentary, sometimes really fragmentary fossils and how you try and figure out how they relate to other things and reconstruct mm-hmm. them. And so through the blog spot world, I just started like, you know, dropping a couple questions in the comments here and there. And that led to conversations with paleontologists. And then it was, uh, my, my, my now good friend, uh, Matt Wadle, who does the blog sauropod vertebrae picture of the week. He was the first one to really like give me time of day and like really answer my questions and encourage me to like, to explore the 
the more speculative and the, the ideas inspired by modern biology that were kind of kicking around in my head. Mm-hmm. And so from, from there, he, he was, he and his uh, co-author Andy Farkey were the first ones to hire me to do like a really legit dinosaur reconstruction of a new dinosaur of the little dinosaur Aquilops Americanus, which is a little, the earliest uh, ceratopsian or cerat- or earliest like basal ceratopsian in North America. And yeah, I, I was like, oh man, this is so cool. Like it's just the idea of being the first one to get to depict this creature. And we had, they had a pretty good skull of it. And it's this cute little critter. And so I went in and like, I did the best I could. And one thing led to another. And here we are. You know, I have a uh, background in illustration myself. So when I oh, see okay. a lot of paleo art, I kind of, kind of look at it. Like, how did they, how did they draw that design? So what I'd like yeah. to know is, what is your process for designing a piece and uh, how do you balance accuracy with, you know, artistic, you know, interpretation, you know, mm. you got to make it look cool, but you also got to keep it realistic, right? Grounded in some kind of reality. Yeah. So really the best place people can see my paleo art process is on my YouTube channel where I've done videos on the process of creating paleo art mm-hmm. or, or specific to different projects I've done. I've also done some talks going through that process Basically, everything starts with the fossils and you have, you know, fossils come in all different levels of completeness and you try and figure out where these fossils fit within the larger picture of life, of ecology, of evolution. And, you know, for me, the pro- that th- those early phases all start with a lot of conversation with paleontologists because I really try and, you know, these people who, who spend their life studying these things you know, they have actually a lot of really creative ideas that have never been actualized in paleo art. And a lot of the coolest stuff in my art has been actually ideas from paleontologists. So I I pick their brains and then I kick them back questions and ideas and try and stir things up a little bit because there is this, there, there is this kind of eternal challenge in paleo art of balancing, you know, like you want to show what we do know from the fossils, Mm -hmm. but when so many fossils are so incomplete, very often, you have to draw from ideas from modern ecology and biology in order to fill in the gaps. When you recognize how incomplete things are, it becomes clear that there are a lot of options that haven't been explored yet in paleo art. And one of my realizations, like as I started doing paleo art, was that there's there's so much, there's so much stuff that's assumed to be true that isn't actually tested and isn't proven, but it gets repeated in paleo art because it feels right like there's this gut feeling thing and i've in my own art i've kind of tried to push back against that gut feeling thing i've tried to push back against that like gut feeling sense of what's true and right in large part because in my lifetime and in the time that i've been really interested in paleontology there's been this series of amazing discoveries especially in china but also in the solnholfen in germany these these fossil discoveries that show us dinosaur soft tissues and they're doing so much with their soft tissues that nobody had predicted mm-hmm. before finding those fossils, which to me is like, as an artist, that's, I, I guess, I think some artists get like the, the, that uncertainty is, is unnerving a bit or is like, uh, yeah, I don't know. they need like, that comfort people, I, zone, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that sometimes you see people like presenting their art as though it's more certain and more confidently known than it actually is and i kind of feel like that's a reaction to this this uncertainty of the fossil record right yeah that's, um, that's got to be why we keep getting pronated wrists in all of our pictures yeah still you know 
Well, yeah, and then there is there is things also like yeah, when you don't understand sort of the process of reconstructing anatomy and how we can infer muscle attachments and range of motion and things like that. Yeah, it, it's really easy to to repeat things that you don't you don't realize aren't likely based on the current knowledge about you know what we can infer from the fossil record and from modern anatomy. Back in uh, 2020, uh, you know, big year for everybody. Not so fun. Oh, yeah, fun year. But that was kind of a huge year for paleontology, right? Like I remember, yeah. I remember that Spinosaurus research kind of came out, and everybody was freaking out about that. But if I got my year right, I think the news, my favorite news of the year, was actually that Dilophosaurus or Dilophosaurus, as as I've hear it, heard it called too, uh, that news of Dilophosaurus coming out, which uh, oh, awesome. was absolutely. Uh, kind of mind-blowing to me. I, I never realized we haven't studied that animal before. And that's kind of where I first heard about you because you redesigned, I had used redesigned loosely, but you worked on that skull uh, that completely changed how Dilophosaurus looks. Uh, how did that process come to be? And uh, how, did you, how did you work on, honestly, such an iconic dinosaur like that? That must have been kind of nerve-wracking, right? Yeah, a little bit nerve-wracking. Uh, I, I, the, the project... It was like a weird combination of luck and really like pushing in that direction for a bunch of years because I, I started doing some art for Rebecca Hunt Foster, who at the time was working for the Utah BLM. Mm -hmm. And she was doing these, these interpretive panels at dinosaur track sites around Moab, Utah. And we did one for the Navajo sandstone, which is the layer of rock or a bunch of layers of rock overlying the Kayenta formation that where the skeletons of Dilophosaurus have been found in Northern Arizona and some related animals in Southwestern Utah. From there, I got working with the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site Museum. So once I got started working with the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site, they wanted new art for some of their museum exhibits, which are built around this amazing early Jurassic dinosaur track site where close relatives, we think, of Dilophosaurus were actually swimming. They were walking around, they were getting mm. in the water on these this lake shore. And, and so that site was like, I, I, you know, I had done the art for the Navajo sandstone, which is just a bit younger than the Kanta. And that site was just a bit older than the Kanta, right on the boundary of the Triassic and the Jurassic. It was this really amazing site. And they actually found teeth and a vertebrae that's since been described at that site. So they know that a close relative of Dilophosaurus was walking around on the shoreline and swimming around and shedding its teeth directly in the lake. And there's these armored fish and they the tooth, the wear on the teeth suggests that they, these, these big theropod dinosaurs may have actually been eating these armored semi-anodiform fish. So I needed to get in touch with people who knew about Dilophosaurus because, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the, yeah, at the St. George site, they have one vertebrae. And in the Navajo sandstone, we just have these tracks. Yeah. And as I was trying to look for reference imagery of these fossils, I learned that Dr. Adam Marsh for his PhD was re-describing Dilophosaurus. And I learned that, oh my gosh, like it had never been properly described. And so while looking at these images of the skull, which is pretty crushed and flattened, mm -hmm. yep. something kind of caught my interest, which was that the crest appeared in grainy, low resolution images on the internet. It looked like the crest was actually connected to the antorbital fenestra, which is this big sinus in the snout of theropod dinosaurs. And I talked to my buddy, Matt Wadle, who studies 
the pneumaticity, the air sacs and hollows in the bones of mm-hmm. especially sauropod dinosaurs, but dinosaurs broadly. He was like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it seems like somebody would have published that or noted that at some point. Um, and so over the course of, I think it took like, like two and a half years, I was like working with Adam and he was sending me pictures and I was like, oh, but I need to, we need to see it from like an oblique view because you see all these dinosaurs from the side view. And it's hard to tell, especially when they're crushed a bit, it's hard to tell the actual depths of features in a flat like profile view. And basically, Adam, you know, eventually got I got access to the collections in Berkeley to to take some pictures and measurements directly from um, the best skull that they have yeah. there. Actually, the, the two best skulls that they have there. And that's in your and video, said, right? Yeah, 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 and that that was that was awesome because, like, Berkeley is Berkeley has an amazing collection, but also their their staff there are really knowledgeable and really interesting. Okay. So I got I got a lot of like the curatorial history from Pat Holroyd, who I think her title is collections manager there, but she's she is amazing, and she gave me this whole lowdown on like how the that crushed skull had gone through all these phases of curation and like you know what what of the skull is kind of unknown or has been distorted as a result of the how they tried to preserve the skull with these different they used basically these concoctions of plastic to try and stabilize the Mm. super thin crest but seeing that in person and also you know thanks to the input of of adam it, it became clear that yeah this crest is definitely connected it's just an ex- it's a it's an upward extension of the antorbital fenestra which is like that dramatically changes how you reconstruct the animal because with any other theropod if you have that airspace in the middle of the skull you basically just put a sheet of some kind of skin whether that's tough hard horny keratin or whether that's just you know flexible scales or even loose wrinkly skin like we see in the faces of birds one way or another cartilage and skin close off that big window, that hole in the middle of a theropod face. So when you close off the one on Dilophosaurus, you're basically dropping a sheet of soft tissue from this, from the top of that tall, tall crest all the way down basically to the lip line, which now instead of having this flimsy, like almost paper thin, you know, some of the, some of the bone in the crest is like a millimeter thin. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, so instead of having this flimsy, unsupported structure, when you recognize that it's actually internal sinus bone, you realize like, oh, well, this thing had to have been enclosed in the cartilage of the site of the basically the sinuses of the snout. And in many ways, the crest is very similar to what we see in some other large theropods and also in uh, modern birds. Mm, but yeah, yeah. The key difference being that in modern birds, the air sacs that have lightened their bones are super elaborated there there's like instead of having one or two big balloon like air spaces invading the bone birds will have like 600 in like the space of a few centimeters they have these <laughs> super filled like super complex air spaces throughout their bone and that's a that's an evolutionary story that we can actually trace through the evolution of dinosaurs from basically from coelophysis and the first prosauropod dinosaurs and basically sort of independently there is this very bird-like elaboration of the air sacs throughout the skeletons of theropod and sauropod dinosaurs and dilophosaurus is kind of early on it's at the beginning of that evolutionary story basically what we realized is that holy cow early in the history of theropod dinosaurs at one branch which actually isn't closely related to anything else we have. Dilophosaurs are 
you know, probably descended from coelophysoids, but are distinct from them in a bunch yeah, of ways. Yeah. But they're early on, they were already basically creating what we think are probably display crests with their enlarged air filled sinuses, which is a very bird like thing to do, you know, about 190 million years ago. Right. So it's kind of, it kind of blew my mind to like really, you know, dig my dig dig into what is actually known about Dilophosaurus and actually see the fossils in person and take all these measurements. And when you take when you take measurements from each of the individual skulls and you piece them all together and scale them according to overlapping elements, you actually get a different look than what people had been repeating or kind of not necessarily repeating in some cases kind of evolving yeah. for 80 years since the yeah. thing was initially found. That was, that was the coolest uh, thing for me. It was just to see how different Dilophosaurus actually kind of wound up looking compared to what it, what it was for, for as long as I've known about it. And that's what uh, I thought was the most exciting about it. Are you currently working on anything else right now? Is there anything more we can uh, look forward to on your work? I, I don't know all of what I can say like ah, yes. publicly, <laughs> but expect a cool new, I've, I've done some art of a cool new site in the Hell Creek. So my first oh, Hell my Creek favorite. formation. Yeah. So the at very end of the age of dinosaurs or T-Rex and Achiraptor and it's Triceratops and a bunch of other weirdos were living. Mm -hmm. That was really fun. I finished that illustration some months ago and I, I don't actually know when that paper will be coming up. It's okay. kind of an interesting, it's an interesting site. I've also got I've got some some paleo botanical oriented stuff in the works, which I'm kind of excited. I'm 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 going to be working with a paleobotanist named uh, Dory Contreras, who's at the Perot Museum on some late Cretaceous, some really cool late Cretaceous plant fossil sites that give us a different view of ancient Cretaceous forests and how complex and varied they were. And then for me, the, the the biggest thing that's been going on consistently in the background for the last three years on, it's also been going on in the background for like now, I guess like seven years. I've been doing field work in the Morrison formation with uh, Rebecca Hunt Foster and John Foster and Matt Waddle and a handful of other researchers. And uh, I've been filming all the stuff that we've been finding in the Morrison formation and, and kind of like the Dilophosaurus story. Excellent. When you really... When you really dig in to what we, what is actually known about the Morrison formation and what is still unknown, and you know what the, the the handful of things that we can say for certain, it's not the formation that people have been thinking it was. I think there's been the Morrison formation has suffered from like a lot of homogenization, mm -hmm. in part. And like Dilophosaurus, paleo art plays a role in this. Yeah. And so what I've been what I've been doing with my documentary project is showing what we actually see in the sediment, in the strata, and kind of like like laying bare or showing very as, as clearly as I can where the unknowns are and where the debates are, and trying to zero in on the things that we can say for certain. My documentary project has suffered from what we call scope creep, where you start, you think it's going to be this small project. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we originally started it as a like a it was supposed to be like a you know five to ten minute outreach video, and then it became clear that oh my gosh, there's there's so much to cover, and this formation is so important and so honestly like mind blowing in what it actually preserves and and some of the stuff we've been finding. It is like I've I've got to expand this project. So I've been. For the last like three years in particular, I've been making a really concerted effort to 
film new field sites and get expert interp on camera. And I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to get it all done, but I'm working one of, one of the really lucky things that's happened recently is I'm working with a museum now that wants a animated Morrison mural. So I'm going to be reconstructing, I'm going to be reconstruct. Well, I've been reconstructing (laughs) this, uh, this giant paleoecological scene from the Morrison of Wyoming. This has been like this weird experience, kind of like Dilophosaurus, where it's like something that piqued my interest. And it's like, just by following the trail of breadcrumbs to where the evidence is and and who's working on cool stuff, it's led to this- Further down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Way down the rabbit hole. And then the rabbit hole led to this mural project that the museum is like, hey, go ahead and like, you know, use this in your documentary. So I've got, I've basically like, uh, opportunity to create some cool animation for my documentary that will also be projected on the wall of a, a museum alongside some really nice Morrison formation uh, fossil mounts. It just landed in my lap <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. So yeah, I, 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 man, I, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been pretty uh, with a lot of these things. It's like, it's a combination of like luck, curiosity and hard work. And you know, you just kind of have to, find a way to make those right. those various forces work together but right. yeah so stay stay tuned for jurassic reimagined parts two and three we've got some cool new fossil sites we've got a lot of really i think really fascinating expert interp in jurassic reimagined part two one of the things we're going to go into in depth is how sauropod these long neck giant long neck dinosaurs lightened their skeletons by having this very bird-like network of air sacs mm-hmm. through their whole skeleton so, Brian, what are the best places anyone listening could uh, find your videos or your art designs? So my website uh, right now, which I my website badly needs to be remodeled. It's called don'tmesswithdinosaurs.com, <laughs> um, which is kind of tongue in cheek, but it's, you know, that's where I put a lot of my art projects. And then uh, I have a YouTube channel for my paleo art, which is youtube.com slash dinosaurs reanimated. You can also just type in my name, Brian Ng. So that's B-R-I-A-N-E-N-G-H into YouTube. And it should come up with my my YouTube paleo art page where you can see a whole bunch of videos on my paleo art process. And I have more in the works. I've been kind of like bogged down in this giant Morrison project for a while mm-hmm. though. So but hit that subscribe and the I think there's like a bell button or something now on YouTube. <laughs> Smash you the know, subscribe do all that. button. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Give me the comments and likes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where you can see my paleo art right. videos. And well, there, there will be more on the way. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I've been looking forward to this one for, for months now. So uh it's I'm glad we can finally uh have a conversation about it all. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. This has been fun. Once again, thank you everybody for listening to the Cranbrook Paleo Podcast. We'll see you on the next one.